Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And I think we should all have to say our names five times to get the podcast to oh, start. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> so we are continuing our February theme of generational trauma. Uh, we talked about this a lot in our episode on Get Out. So make sure you check that out if you haven't already. We talked a lot about like safe spaces, performative white guilt, um, empathy, and a lot of things. And I think it's a really great conversation, but I think we're going to go in a slightly different direction today, although still under the umbrella of generational trauma. Uh, we are talking about Candyman, 1992's Candyman today, and I am so excited. I love this movie. I want to give a big disclaimer that we are three white people talking about this movie. We have all, I think, each done a ton of research trying to seek out other, like, points of view. We're going to link all of that. Um, I want to try to reference that. Um, And I also want to say, I think white people can talk about these things and we need to get better at talking about these things. I think it's just important that we look for other viewpoints too and try to understand those viewpoints. But I just wanted to give that big disclaimer today. Thank you for, I think that's actually a good thing to give that disclaimer. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? And we're going to say this at the end of the episode, like we always do, but we want to hear from you too. So if there's anything that we say that you um, agree or disagree with, please let us know. We want to hear your point of view as well. But before we start talking about Candyman, (laughs) we're going to give a brief synopsis of the movie in case you haven't seen it or it's been a while. So here is your spoiler warning, and it's going to come in the form of a B today. Spoilers! (laughs) He's gonna sting you. 
I know. <laughs> I hate bees so much. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> I, it occurred to me, you texted us the other day, like, bees are triggering, and it seemed like it came out of nowhere. And it was because I, I didn't realize, because, oh, yeah, we're on Candyman week. Anyway. <laughs> I was like, Mike just really hates bees. Okay. I really do hate bees. <laughs> They're the one bug that doesn't bother me. And it might be because of this movie because like, I'll, well, in I my feelings check in, I'll discuss my feelings on bees. Um, okay. I'm going to talk this. I'm going to give the synopsis now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is going well. Okay. Helen and Bernadette are graduate students collecting urban legends for their thesis. They learn about the legend of Candyman and decide to make him and the community he emerged from the focus of their work. Candyman was a black artist from the 1890s, lynched on the grounds where Cabrini Green now stands for impregnating the daughter of a wealthy white landowner. The lynch mob murdered him in a particularly gruesome and elaborate way, by cutting off his hand and jamming a hook into the stump, then smearing him with honey that attracted a swarm of bees that stung him to death. Whew. He mm -hmm. has now become an urban legend, terrorizing the residents of Cabrini Green. The legend goes that he can be summoned by saying his name five times into a mirror, then turning off the light. Helen is determined to go to Cabrini Green to learn more about him, even though Bernadette tries to convince her that it's not safe. White privilege blazing, <laughs> Helen makes herself at home in the housing project, meeting a woman named Anne-Marie and her baby Anthony, as well as a young boy named Jake. She promises Jake that any information he gives her about Candyman will stay between the two of them, then immediately betrays that trust. Jake shows her the scene of a horrific murder in a public restroom. While she's investigating, she's attacked by, air quotes, Candyman, a gang leader who uses the legendary moniker. After a beaten up Helen picks him out in a lineup, he is charged with the attack, as well as the other Cabrini Green murders that were blamed on the legend himself. But Jake, now forced out of his home and surrounded by cops, doesn't have to testify. So everything's fine, right? This is uh, sarcasm for the record. Helen totally exploited him. Yep. Yep. Okay. After healing from the attack, thinking that she's about to become a super famous academic, she encounters the real Candyman in a parking garage, hook for hand and all. And as his seductive voice pierces her mind, she passes out and wakes up covered in blood in Anne-Marie's apartment. Someone has killed the dog and Anthony is missing, his crib full of blood. Helen is arrested for the crime, but is bailed out the next day by her shitty husband, Trevor, who's clearly cheating on her with his much younger student. <laughs> she goes home, but Candyman continues to appear to her, murdering Bernadette when she comes to visit Helen. Caught red-handed over Bernadette's body, Helen is committed and given Thorazine for a month before speaking with the doctor. He doesn't believe that Candyman is the real killer, so Helen summons him in his office and more or less shouts, I told you so, as Candyman <laughs> guts him with his hook. <laughs> Helen escapes and goes home to find that Trevor has moved his new girlfriend into their apartment and she's painting the walls a hideous Pepto-Bismol pink it's really the real worse. crime of the movie it's, 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 really, really, it's like one of the horror. most lasting images um, mm. <laughs> Helen scares the shit out of them and then leaves realizing she has nothing left she then decides to save baby Anthony she returns to Cabrini Green and finds Candyman offering herself in place of Anthony but Candyman needs a sacrifice to maintain his reign of terror. Helen wakes up and finds baby Anthony using a Candyman-like hook to crawl inside a giant pile of furniture built like a bonfire in an empty lot. She finds the baby, but only after a group of Cabrini residents led by Jake set the pyre ablaze, believing Candyman is inside. Candyman is also there, trapping Helen and the baby so that she'll stay with him in death. Helen fire stakes him and scoots away with Anthony, catching on fire in the process. 
She escapes the bonfire and returns Anthony to his mother, but dies, bald and covered in burns. At her sparsely attended funeral, the residents of Cabrini Green march in. They are led by Anne-Marie and Jake, who drop Candyman's hook into her open grave. Later, Trevor is hiding from his terrible child girlfriend and mourning Helen in the bathroom. He says her name five <laughs> times in the mirror, then turns the light out. She appears behind him and kills him with Candyman's hook. We close on a new mural in Candyman's Cabrini HQ, featuring a deified Helen surrounded by a halo of flames. Cue Philip Glass. Okay, I'm really, I'm gonna stop. I won't keep doing that. It's fantastic. I love it. Sponsor Wayne's World, another Chicago movie. Yeah, this is all gonna be a Chicago movie. Yeah, I mean, I I love Philip Glass, and it is. I mean, it's an amazing score. Um, so now let's start with our feelings check. And this is when we share our first experience with Candyman and how we feel when we watch it. Mike, would you care to start? So I would say I saw this in theaters. I believe this existed in that magical time and place where I had like a driver's license and friends that would go see just about anything with me. And I can tell you that like 17 year old me, like the racial dynamics of this movie went completely over my head. And like the only thing like pre-internet, you know, pre-everything, like all I cared about was the fact that like Tony Todd is a badass motherfuckers candy man with a hook and he like spits out bees. So that to me <laughs> at 17 is really all I needed for a movie to be like the coolest shit in the world. Um, I remember like really liking this as a kid and you know, I still really like this movie. It's definitely not a movie without flaws. And we're going to get into some of the more structural flaws of it overall. But, you know, apart from that, there's like huge chunks of the movie that don't make a lot of narrative sense. Like mm -hmm. trying to figure out what Candyman is exactly. Like, is he flesh and blood? Is he a ghost? Um, his backstory doesn't really hold up under a lot of scrutiny. The pacing can be disjointed at times as well. But all that said, like the stuff that works, works in a really big way. And I think a lot of that you can put right on the shoulders of Tony Todd, who is just like incredible in this role. Um, and you you can see why it kind of launched him into a career, a career where he's appeared in over like 200 films, I believe, since then, because he's just so damn good he's and so, good. so captivating mm -hmm. in this. So this is a big, watching it now, like I'm definitely more aware of some of the more problematic aspects of it and it's stuff that we're going to definitely talk about. And I don't necessarily think that lessens the movie. I think like it, what I, what I feel in my heart is this movie provides like a really great blueprint to talk about some bigger things mm -hmm. by persons that have like maybe more lived in experiences, which makes me really excited for August and Nia DaCosta's yes. Candyman. Yes. That's my I number guess. one most yeah. anticipated of I, the year. I am clenched just thinking mm -hmm. about it. I just got really like my thighs yeah. just like turned into rows. Yeah. <laughs> Laura, what about you? Um, as evidenced by that statement, I also oh, yeah. have <laughs> have a lot of feelings about this movie. I mean, 
I will preface it by saying I, as per usual, I don't remember the exact moment that I saw it, but I know it was after I must have been either in college or after college because I went to the University of Illinois at Chicago, which is the setting for uh, uh, what's her nuts is Helen's whole job and her mm -hmm. husband's job as anthropology professors or graduate students. And I, so, I mean, my first viewing of this, I was very, very distracted by the Chicago setting and the fact that I was like, I went there. <laughs> um, and, and also I will say uh, UIC, in my opinion, has some of the best air quotes best or like most interesting architecture um, on the face of the planet. It is this, it's called brutalism, um, the style of it that is highlighted very uh, coolly in the movie, um, very harsh, like concrete, harsh lines. Everything kind of looks like a Soviet prison. Um, mm. The windows were all tiny to prevent rioters from, quote unquote, rioters in the 60s from smashing, smashing the windows. It is a, a university that is really rooted in Chicago history and um, Chicago activism. And also it was, when I went there, it was one of the more progressive curriculums. Like it's the first place I learned about things like colonialism and um, redlining. And, you know, it's very, that that university is very aware of its of its history and its place uh, as a city campus for commuters. It is one of the most diverse universities in the country. It was a really, it's, I'm really glad I went there. Uh, it, it's so, I mean, I was just very like distracted by the set and setting. I also, um, for one year, our junior year of high school, I went to a, I did go to a predominantly uh, black and Mexican high school. I was one of like five white kids in my class. And there was one year where they relocated our building to basically down the street from Cabrini Green, that shot where you see the church, those overhead shots, mm -hmm. um, pretty much by the time I was in high school, almost all of those towers had been raised. There was maybe like one still standing and that mm -hmm. church. So you would look down the street and just see that red brick church and like one of those, those towers. And so um, again, I was just like, doing the thing where I'm like, I went, I went to there. Uh -huh. um, that, that was, that building was where I was when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. um, so all that said, I think it's a, I mean, the cinematography, everything is, it's just uses the imagery and the vibes of Chicago and it, uh, in a very poetic way with that Philip Glass score, with those overhead shots of, of the interstate and all that. And I, and I really think it speaks to Chicago's history as an incredibly segregated city that is the, is the seat of a lot of federal redlining and stuff that I know Mike is going to get into a little bit later. So it is a hugely Chicago movie. And for that place, for that reason alone, it will always have a special place in my heart. Like Mike said, it has got some problems, and I, but I do think it sort of acts again like a Trojan horse into a lot of ideas that were, especially in the 90s, not really being discussed in media or in cinema. So we're going to get into all the reasons it's problematic, but I, I do think just from a craft level in terms of the photography, the music, the pacing, the acting, Tony Todd's performance, I think it's a masterfully made film, just one that... Um, kind of stumbled into some territory that I didn't really fully understand or know how to interrogate. So I'm so excited to talk about it. I am excited to talk about this movie as well. It is one of my all-time favorites. And I, I do remember the first time that I watched this. I was in fifth grade and I was spending the night at a friend's house and we rented this and we watched it. And I remember being 
terrified. Like this scared the shit out of me. For a l- I don't really believe in the scariest movie ever because I feel like that's so subjective, even for specific people. But I do have moment or movies that have kind of reigned with that title for periods of my life. And Candyman had the scariest movie for me for like a good ten years, I think, because it just it was so scary. It was the first time I think I've really seen this level of like gore and brutal killing, you know. Mm-hmm. But I also have this feeling of remembering that I watched the end and did not feel as scared anymore like I think the way that it ends there's an empowerment there it's problematic which we're going to talk about but like like fifth grade me was like oh okay I can handle this like the the ending it's just a journey but so I watched this and I just am fascinated by urban legends kind and we're going to talk about that too but just as a way of like teaching lessons and like examining like the systems we live in and so this movie like really taps into that Um, I think as I watch this the older I get I love how much this movie challenges me because we talked about this in our get out episode like I approach conversations about oppression through my experiences in feminism and I say that as a white woman um, and my challenge is to not let those experiences overtake the conversation and I think this movie does that and it challenges yeah. that like it makes me really because I, I'm, I'm gonna say there's a lot that I really love about Helen I fell in love with Candyman and Tony Todd but I also fell in love with Virginia Madsen mm-hmm. in this role and I think like I was like I want to be a sociologist like I want to have a job where I can examine these urban legends and so I think the more I watched this the more like this time I found a lot more problems with her than I ever had before just because I think my lens is expanding and Mm -hmm. so this movie I think is a great like you said Mike a, a good entry point into those conversations and just like there's so many competing things here And that's what like really fascinates me and makes me want to like dig in and piece it all apart and figure out what it's actually saying and what I can take from it. Um, And it's just it's so fucking good. It's such a a well-made movie that no that has its own style and its own like it is what it is. The score is fucking amazing. I was a music major when I went to college and I remember studying Philip Glass in college and freaking out because I was like Candyman and nobody in my Southern Baptist college had ever heard of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's just one of those, this movie, it's just, it's got this special place in my heart. I love Tony Todd. Um, so like dreamy in this he's movie. He's so hot. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, I just I'm... find him so seductive and Ooh. so like, I mean, he plays it very like sexily, you know? Right. <laughs> and I've heard he's just the nicest person too. Yeah. He, all, from all accounts, he's supposed to be, I got to stand outside next to him once at the New York City Horror Film Fest. And oh I can attest to the fact that A, he was very nice in those moments we chatted briefly for 30 seconds. And he is also that tall. He is a giant among men. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, That's, he's kind of got that like Christopher Lee energy, like the really, Mm -hmm. the the height, the voice, the stature, the like bone structure. He's just like, he's got, he's got a fucking screen presence. No. Yeah. He definitely does. Yeah. And I mean, I also am a sucker for Final Destination too. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's pretty uh, creepy (laughs) in those movies. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of feelings about this movie. And I think it's these, this is one of the movies where I think there's, I think I can look at the way it's constructed and the way it's made 
kind of separately from what I think it's saying and what I think it's doing and what I think it thinks it's doing and what it's actually doing. (laughs) And all of those things can exist at the same time. And I, we can all have competing feelings about it. And I'm really looking forward to kind of piecing it all apart and kind of making sense of this, this fantastic beehive of brilliance. (laughs) It is a a beehive is a great way to describe it. So let's talk about our mental health topic, generational trauma. And in order to talk about that, we're going to talk a little bit about systemic or institutional racism. So basically, like institutional racism is this idea that it's baked right into the system in order to provide advantages to the dominant culture. And it's a way to hold back minorities through procedures and processes that put them in an immediate disadvantage. And I think that's one of the things that when persons like when white persons get up in arms about hearing the phrase white privilege they immediately assume that someone is saying to them it means that you've never worked hard at all and that's not what it is like Mm -hmm. what privilege means is basically like you may have had other advantages that others were not able to benefit from it doesn't mean that you've never struggled it doesn't mean that you've never worked hard in your life. It doesn't mean you've, you haven't earned what you've gotten, but it means that others haven't had access to those things. Right. And and also that that being that your race wasn't one of the disadvantages against you in the world. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. And just how pervasively that can that can affect mm-hmm. your life. And that's the institutional side of it. Right. Yep. Yeah. So we, we see that in, you know, one of the things when people say like, oh, the system is broken. And it's not that the system is broken. The problem is the system is working as yep. it was written and intended to work. Mm-hmm. And that's why the that's why we call call it structural or institutional racism is because it's actually baked into it's baked into our system and it's working as it intended. So yep. we don't necessarily need to fix the system, but we need a new system to kind of build off of in order to make things more equitable for everyone. And I'll just point out a couple different things right here and then maybe dive just a little bit more specifically into mental health. But politically, when you look at something called gerrymandering, and that's something we're going to hear a lot more of in the next year or two, Mm -hmm. as districts are redrawn, what you see are congressional districts drawn up in urban settings, which tend to vote more democratic and tend to have higher populations of Black, Latino, and um, other populations that tend to vote Democratic. When you have congressional Republicans and congressional Republican state legislatures, what they have the ability to do after the census is draw those districts up so that basically Black votes don't count for as much as a white vote would. So you look at, uh, if you look at, say, Jim Jordan's district in Ohio, there is a huge chunk that looks like it's missing. I think it's almost like a crescent-shaped district overall. And it's drawn that way in order to give him an advantage over other persons that would be more likely to vote for his opponent overall. So you see like a disproportionate representation in things like Congress. You also see that in the way that voting laws are written. You have like voter ID laws, which basically state you need to like purchase a state or a driver's license in order to be able to vote. That's an example of institutional racism because not everybody has the funds in order to, you know, that $50 at my coffee or state ID might be the difference between eating or not. Or can you afford to take an entire day off yes. of work to mm-hmm. go get whatever that paperwork is? Right. Yeah. The fact, I would say the fact that like 
voting should be a national holiday. Yes. And I know that it doesn't mean that every single like, and the argument against it is, well, not every person gets national holidays off. Yes, but many do. And it would improve, even if it doesn't completely fix it, it would improve it. And the, especially when you have Veterans Day a week later, and that is a national holiday, like why you don't just move that day mm-hmm. to become voting day, especially when so many people make an argument like, how do you not vote? Like people died for your right to do that. Well, great. Maybe we tie the two things in together. Exactly. Right. I can't think of a better way to actually acknowledge mm-hmm. and celebrate Veterans Day than by making mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what part of that system, like the system is working the way it's supposed to, because there's, there's a reason we don't get that day off, you know, it's, and it's not, it's not like out loud voter suppression, but Mm -hmm. it is designed to allow certain people easier access to voting, whereas Mm -hmm. other people do not. A really big one we've seen recently is the way polling places are set up Yeah. in that you'll have urban communities with far fewer polling places available to them than you would say in a more rural uh, or suburban district. So places where there's a highly concentrated population, there may be only one place to vote. And Jen, to your point, like you just said, if you're at the back of that line and it's gonna be eight hours to vote, do you have the ability to lose like a day's worth of wages in order to do so? So that's another thing that we see. You tend to see uh, in some cases older and less reliable equipment. So oftentimes there might be breakdowns of the machines. You're seeing restrictions that are, we're trying to see more restrictions after 2020 on mail-in voting and absentee voting, because again, who tends to vote that way tends to structure candidates that is going to, that are going to be more open to changing the system as opposed to keeping the status quo. So those are all examples of systemic racism that we see. The wage gap would be another one. Um, There's a March 2020 report from the National Partnership for Women and Families found that Black women were paid 62 cents on the dollar when compared to the white male counterparts. Um, So you're just seeing a difference in what people are paid for doing the same work and the same job. This also ties into things like generational wealth. Mm -hmm. Because persons of color have traditionally made less in wages, they have a much harder time securing loans and mortgages. We see that in things like redlining, where banks and other lending institutions literally draw red lines around neighborhoods where persons of colors predominantly live, and they label those areas as higher risk when it comes to giving out loans. What happens in that case for someone like myself that has a mortgage with between my wife and I, like when we pass away, we have more to pass on to our daughter. Mm-hmm. So she's going to inherit, like, just like I inherited from my grandparents, I was able to pay off my first student loan um, partially through like a small inheritance. And then that became something I didn't have to worry about for years and years and years at that point. Yeah. And that's the the pulling yourself up by your bootstraps yes. thing where the argument starts to fall apart because I benefit mm-hmm. from the fact that my grandparents were able to purchase a home, which mm-hmm. a lot of people of color or marginalized groups were not able to do. And so right. I am I have accumulated that benefit, even though I didn't do anything to deserve it. I was mm-hmm. just born into it. It doesn't yeah. make me bad it means that i need to be aware of that and help change the system so that we can start changing that and diversifying all of those benefits exactly 
And because of this generational wealth gap, because persons of color have traditionally made less in wages and have a harder time securing loans, securing mortgages, because there's less wealth passed from one generation to another, that also means there's less tax dollars for school systems. So then you start to see tremendous inequities in public education, where the buildings are more worn out, the textbooks are more worn out, the curricula curriculum isn't updated, classroom sizes tend to be larger because they're not don't have the funding to hire the appropriate amount of teachers. The buildings tend to not have proper ventilation. They may be too cold in the winter and far too hot in the spring and summer, which makes it very difficult as a student to kind of concentrate at that point. So now you're contributing to inequities in education as well, yeah. all coming from this kind of wealth gap that we see between white persons and others. And that leads to the workforce, like jobs yeah. that people are able to apply for based on mm -hmm. colleges they were able to get into based on, yeah. yeah. It's, it's so, very deeply baked in and woven into just about every piece yeah. of our And um, if you want a really good description of the situation, specifically in Chicago and, and the redlining that has occurred in this city, read Ta-Nehisi Coates's The Case for Reparations. Mm -hmm. He gets, he, if you look at the online version, he uses some visual representations of Chicago specifically um, and how it had, you know, there's some ways you can like superimpose things over each other. It is, I think when I read that was in, I think it was in 2015 was the first time a lot of this stuff really clicked for me, despite having grown up in Chicago. And it's, it was just kind of like one of those moments where I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and like, and, mm -hmm. and just the article does a really amazing job if you want to yeah. learn more about that. Absolutely. So in terms of the effects that this kind of systemic racism has on mental health, there are a number of studies that have found time and time again that poverty at both individual and community levels are contributing factors to poor mental health incomes. There are higher instances of reported depression, anxiety, trauma, and higher rates of suicidal ideation. Impoverished neighborhoods leave the population exposed to really psychologically devastating occurrences such as family violence, social order, and social unrest as well. The detrimental effects of segregated communities that we see like in Candyman, I think is a really good example of showing like a completely isolated and segregated community. There's a lack of access in these neighborhoods to proper physical and mental health treatment, lower access to proper health care and health insurance, higher rates um, mean and the higher cost of physical and mental health means that a higher portion of your already limited income is taken up. And it oftentimes, if it's a choice between paying the rent or putting food on the table and seeing a therapist or getting a nagging injury looked at, the, you're going to say, well, I have to eat. I can maybe just not worry about these other things. Less access to quality public education, like we mentioned. And this, in turn, you see some other things like lower nutritional rates, you see lower birth rates, higher levels of obesity, lower life expectancies often in these communities. There was a push in the mid-60s after the signing of the Civil Rights Bill to expand physical and mental health access in urban communities. Uh, that would have primarily benefited Black and Latino persons. There would have been things like more bilingual staff, greater access to social services, and community and educational advocates that could help persons navigate what is often like a very complicated system. Mm -hmm. This actually, this past week, uh, Mitt Romney, of all people, introduced a bill that 
people on the left, like um, big think tanks on the left are saying this would lift over almost 2 million people out of poverty right now. And in part, he wants to do that by making it cost neutral and eliminating some programs that already exist. Uh, and the argument against some of these programs is they are so difficult to navigate for people that the persons who need them the most don't actually use them. So unfortunately, by the 80s, like this push towards community health centers, you see the Reagan administration and the conservative movement begin to demonize the poor and any political will or financial means that would have been available for these organizations, it fades away. And what you start to see is an acceleration of privatized medicine and, and insurance companies. And it's kind of the leads of the mess we're in right now where our healthcare system is basically terrible. It's uh, <laughs> fucked, to totes yeah. fucked, <laughs> I would call it's, it. It's, <laughs> it's awful. What you're seeing now in the past, I would say 15 to 20 years, there is a much greater emphasis on the multicultural model of therapy and counseling. Mm. Uh, what we've seen previously, what would have been seen as resistance to therapy, uh, a term that wasn't necessarily coined by Dr. Albert Ellis, but with rational motive behavior therapy, but one he made popular talking about resistance in or resistance to therapy, that's actually now being understood as like our lack of understanding as counselors to differences in cultures and differences in norms and attitudes. So it's something that, you know, for myself as a school counselor, I work in a community that is 90% persons of color. So it is constantly on me to kind of check myself and my attitude and there are times where I'm like, well, why did I talk to a certain student like this versus another student? What were the, were there any biases involved in it? Um, and trying to constantly reevaluate how I approach the students. And I, I will say I am very fortunate in the school that I work in that I would say like the vast, vast, vast majority of the teachers and counselors and administration are aware of this and really take a very humanistic view of their students and really care. Is it perfect? No. Do they try to get better? Absolutely. And do they do a tremendous job for these kids under like really hard circumstances? Hell yeah. That's great. That's interesting. That's something, um, just thinking about the resistance to therapy. And, and Mike, I will say too, that's kind of the bias thing that we were talking about is that we all have bias. We are human mm -hmm. beings and we have bias and it's the key is being aware and interrogating that bias, which it sounds like what you were doing. And I have those experiences right. as a teacher too. Like, why did I zero in on this and not that? Mm -hmm. And um, there has been a move for, and a lot of organizations doing the work where they, uh, there's website directories where you can find what they call culturally competent therapists or therapists mm -hmm. that, you know, directories that if you are a Black American, you can find a Black American therapist. If you are a Native or Indigenous person, you can find a therapist who is Native or Indigenous. Um, and that, you know, especially when you when you get into healthcare in America and negotiating insurance directories and how much things cost and yada, yada, it can be very, very difficult um, to find someone that is you know, trained in culturally competent therapy that looks like you, that ha understands your lived experience, because we touched about this on in the Get Out episode. Um, there are, are very valid reasons why people say, for example, from mm -hmm. the Black community, mistrust, uh, you know, the, in the institution of psychology or psychiatry. Right. So I will share some of those resources that, and we can link to them. So, or put them on our Instagram. 
there's like psychology today. I know if you're looking for therapists, that there's yeah. a section there that goes not only by uh, gender and sexuality, but um, different ethnicities that they serve as well, which is a yeah. really nice way to kind of. Yeah, they have one of the best databases online for act finding up-to-date information about your therapists. Yeah. And I've had like at the school, I've had parents tell me like, you seem really nice, but I would like my kid to be able to talk to like a mentor that comes from a similar background to which my response has always been, sure, let me see what I can do for you. Yeah. You know, because that's a totally understandable thing. And I think it's when, a, when we talk about maybe some of the problems in Candyman, we're going to talk about how like good intentions with misunderstandings can lead to some problems in interpretation. Yes. Yep. And that is something that I see to take it slightly to another tack is um, in ethnomusicology, which is something that I work adjacent to. And I use mm -hmm. the work of ethnomusicologists, although I am not claiming to be one. And an ethnomusicologist is somebody who studies the music of other cultures. And so there's this idea of wanting to understand um, a culture's music and what that can show and uh, or what you can learn about the culture there. But there's also like a lot of times that lens is a white Eurocentric lens coming in to study a people. And there's been so many cultures throughout history have been told that their music is either sinful or that you can't like you can't share this. You're like not allowed to like with enslaved people. It was like sometimes prohibited because that was seen as a method of communication and community building. So to come in and just expect a community to share all of a sudden because you've now decided that you're a good person. And I feel like we see this with Helen. Like there, oh, yeah. there has to be this understanding of why a community might be resistant to that, which I think I think there's a lot of as much as I am a huge proponent of therapy and I think it is fantastic and I've gotten a lot of benefit out of it. It is a function of Western medicine that was built on a foundation of serving white men and mm -hmm. to an extent white women. So there's like this deficit ideology there that I think is just really baked in. And so I'm it, expanding that takes involving people from other cultures to be the, the forward facing therapist to, to like build that trust, you know? Yeah. We need to do a way better job as an industry of attracting more black and Latino and other cultural competent therapists into this industry. Part of the issue is like, there is a huge financial barrier to overcome mm -hmm. base of you because you need a in almost all cases are going to need at least a master's degree to practice and you're going to need x amount of hours in the field before you can get licensed so you work at a lower rate you're going to need x amount of hours in the field as a student where most of the time it's going to be an unpaid internship so you're going to you're going to have to have like the financial resources up front to be able to kind of take those things on and if we're talking about financial deficits and wage gaps to begin with and no generational wealth, then are you going to be able to do that? And I don't know if that means that we offer more scholarships and free education at a graduate level towards persons that are interested in this field. I don't know if that means we just complete, well, you should cancel student debt anyway. Uh, but I don't know yep. if it means like canceling student debt. I don't, need, you know, I don't know the complete answer, but I do know that as an industry, we need to do a much, much better job of hiring and attracting persons to this field. 
Well, and Absolutely. like, I don't know if there is a complete answer. Like there is not one thing because it's yeah. yes, all of those things and probably five other things. And mm-hmm. it's just like really trying to understand the problem and attacking it in as many ways as you can. And certain things that we do are not, it's like what we were talking about, about making um, voting day a national holiday. That is not going to help every single person who wants to mm-hmm. vote, but that's going to help a lot of people. Yeah. And that's a step. And then we look at what we can do to help more people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like this, this shit didn't happen overnight it's not going to be fixed overnight right yeah and if we let not being able to solve the entire problem stop us Mm -hmm. we never make any progress yeah i mean i I like the expression don't let perfect be the enemy of good yes Mm -hmm. me too you know and i think that happens a lot where if you don't have a complete answer to a problem then you don't do anything at all and hey there's a reason why teachers give partial credit sometimes yeah just saying (laughs) yep i did that a lot um well so shall we dive into this movie? Because I think we're yes. going to have a lot to say about this. Um, and I want to start with uh, Candyman himself. And this kind of goes back into my fascination with urban legends. And to kind of, I know it probably sounds like we went a, a little away from generational trauma, but I think it's all baked into mm-hmm. this big systemic stew. Laura, your stew analogy has just like, <laughs> changed my <laughs> everything's mind. Everything's once you realize everything's a stew, you can't see anything but the stew. Exactly. Uh, you just got to yeah. And, get and a I big would say spoon. that the, what we're <laughs> examining here is the elements that go into traumatizing generation after generation of black americans yes um we are examining the the raw ingredients of the trauma itself and this movie i think tries to do that too but again has a very white lens or white white way into the conversation which you know, is what it is. Well, and so to say that this was adapted from a short story called The Forbidden, which was written by Clive Barker. And I've read it a couple of times and it's, I just need to be more familiar with Clive Barker. That's an aside. Um, But there's like my kind of, what you were saying about, it doesn't feel totally fleshed out. Um, This is very different than the story that's in The Forbidden. Um, It was set in Liverpool, and I don't know if there's really a mention of race, but it's assumed that the characters are all white Mm -hmm. um, and that they're all British. And so this racial element is not a part of it. The candy with the razors is. So I think that inclusion in the movie is really just kind of a a nod to that, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. really fit. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. And so like when we talk about this movie, I think that's where if this movie were made today and hopefully when it is, I feel like there's going to be more of an awareness of what a story like this set in America is and Mm -hmm. does. And the, all of the history that comes attached with that, that's just not really present in Clive Barker's story because it's written for another, uh, another population. But when I look at Candyman himself, because he is an urban legend. And when I look at what an urban legend does, it is they really kind of exist as like morality tales like this is what you do and this is what happens when you don't like if you look at the like the easiest one I guess is the babysitter like are you watching the children do you know where the children are are you filling the role of a good caretaker so when I look at the legend of Candyman and what he exists as this is when I I'm really looking forward to examining this because his trauma has become the legend. It has become the fear that is passed down over generations and generations. And that fear shapes this population in a way that allows outside populations to generalize also, which, and I'm not going to say like, 
that um, Helen experiences trauma because of this story. She doesn't. But this story, the trauma of this story affects the way she sees people that do relate to that trauma. I don't know if I said that well, but we're going to pick it apart. But what I like is that mm-hmm. this this legend, the trauma, the generational trauma is carried through the generations in the form of an urban legend. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there's there's some interesting stuff going on there with his with the idea or the origin story yes. of Candyman as stated in the movie being a educated black man in the 1890s who falls in love with a white woman. And I'm going to quote really quickly. I found this article on The Root by a man named Lawrence Ware. This is a very quick quote, but I think it sort of opens the door to that part of the conversation, which is put simply, this is the ultimate leave those white girls alone movie. His infatu- mm-hmm. his meaning Candyman infatuation with white woman with white women and his desire to enter white society make him who he is, and Helen, the main character of the film, is the new object of his desire. This was written and directed by a white man, but I am convinced that my grandmother, whose only advice for me when I left college was work hard and leave them damn white girls alone, was a consultant on the film. And I think that's kind of where my my trauma thing, where I was kind of losing my train of thought. Because if we look at the two sides of this equation, there's Helen and there's Candyman. Mm-hmm. And both of them exist in a world where that legend of white women should be afraid of black men. Both of them exist in that world. Although I think as a white woman, like I didn't really grow up hearing mm-hmm. that. I just hear kind of, it was on the periphery, but that exists. But Helen is not traumatized by that story. She just right. is aware of it in the same way that Candyman would be. I mean, literally because he died because of it, but like a black man is going to suffer generational trauma because of that story in a way that Helen will not because she is not the victim of it. It is something where what, in one of the, when I was doing my research for this, there's a really good podcast that was out there called Black Men Can't Jump. And they raised the, Point when talking about and they were all kind of like yeah the movie's okay they were really and this was before it was announced that uh nita costa was going to redirect or direct the kind of remake slash reboot that it was like more closely attached with maybe jordan peele directing mm-hmm. they talked about their excitement for him directing because of what he was going to bring to the table culturally in terms of understanding but what they had said to a person was like this is another movie where someone's blackness is what defines them as a monster yeah. and specifically if you point out what makes tony todd scary he's tall he's handsome and he's black compare that to other villains in horror look at jason Voorhees. he's this deformed hulking zombie beast that hides behind a hockey mask freddy krueger is terrifying to look at he's this burned up and scarred child murderer Michael Myers, his mask is this blank white mask where you can project any of your fears onto that. All of them have these defining physical characteristics that make them an other, that make them scary, that make them terrifying. Tony Todd just happens to be very tall and very black. That's what's terrifying. That's what makes him a monster. And there's something that does play into like racial stereotyping and racial tropes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm know makes it a bit more of a problem than if like tony todd happened to be black but was scarred in some way or his like jaw was missing from the bee stings you know if there was something that defined him as horrific other than just his blackness then that would be a different story and i and i think that it's it's hard to examine the depiction of Candyman here without also examining the depiction of cabrini green Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. as a 
frightening, you know, scary place that is just filthy, dirty, and that the the white woman entering that space, mm -hmm. you know, and Bernadette, who is kind of coded as white, which I can, yeah. you know, or, or whiter than she is black, mm -hmm. is, you know, it the fear is for the white protagonist, not for the residents of Cabrini Green, even though, as we discussed, because of, you know, segregation, redlining, institutional racism, the only reason that could, you know, Cabrini Green and places like it um, are challenging to, to live in is because of what white people did this, you yeah. know, and, and I think that Candyman is only a monster because he was lynched by white murderers. Yeah, mm -hmm. but but I agree. And I think people, you know, that is part of the criticism of this film is that um, it amplifies those those fears of blackness and of black men. Mm -hmm. And there was a article I found from 1992. I think you found it too, Mike, uh, mm -hmm. from the Chicago Tribune, quoting two filmmakers black male filmmakers, Reginald Hudlin and Carl Franklin, just sort of talking about why they had problems with it at the time. And I think it's really interesting to, yeah. to read that article that was published when the movie actually came out in dialogue with all this critique of the film that is more contemporary. I think that the, that article makes some really yeah. good points about the problematic elements. Yeah. Well, one of the things too, Candyman doesn't have a name. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, like I, we mentioned, like you ha with other iconic villains in horror you have a specific person that you can point to whether it's freddy krueger in the nightmare on elm street movies or whether it's mary lou in prom night 2 you have someone very specific you can point to Candyman is anonymous he's not given any sort of name and then at that Candyman at that point just becomes like another black boogeyman like you should be afraid of all black men mm -hmm. he's a stand-in for all of that at that at this point and i think that's you know, one of the issues we, that can be said with the movie. Yeah. And I think like one of the things that I love about this movie, and I love looking at this through Helen's character, as well as Candyman's character, is I feel like this movie really examines what monstrosity is and mm -hmm. what makes someone monstrous. Mm -hmm. And when I look at Helen's arc, what I see as a white woman, the message that I take when that's what I choose to focus on is that it is a cautionary tale for white women in a system mm -hmm. that doesn't, that views them as disposable as well. Like there's no. a moment when the system turns on Helen and she becomes the kind of story that she has been studying. And mm -hmm. there's this like fear like this feeling of like, oh, I can't call the detective by his first name anymore. The detective is not my friend anymore mm -hmm. because she's on the other side. And I think right. it's really interesting to examine that. The problem, and I'll have probably more to say about that later, but the problem is that that is happening on the back of trauma that is greater than right. what she has suffered. It's also a cautionary tale for black men. It's mm -hmm. this idea that like your blackness will always set you apart and you'll always be less than you have like the candy man is a son of a prominent sl former slave who himself has gone on to great wealth and prosperity by being able, I think it says that he builds like shoes and boots for Northern soldiers that are mm -hmm. so good that he becomes extremely wealthy. And then the candy man himself is like, he's well-educated, he's sophisticated, he's handsome, he's articulate, and he possesses this artistic talent that makes him very sought after. And what his only trespass is he falls in love and he impregnates a white woman. And basically, this is a cautionary tale saying there are some things that as a black person, you should never be able to have. And yep. one of them 
is these things. And if you do that, then we will come after you. And you see this in literature as far back as Othello. You see it in To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, you see the, the interracial uh, relationship taboo in like things like the ex-heavyweight boxer Jack Johnson at the turn of the 20th century, uh, heavyweight champ who was basically ridden out of the sport for his love for white women. You see it in the murder of Emmett Till, like a yeah. young boy in the racist South who just, just whistled at a white woman. And he was mm -hmm. like butchered by a gang of racists. So, and these are still occur. I mean, you started and get out. Like, do your right. parents know that I'm black? You know, and that was a real conversation that had to be had. Well, in Central Park, Karen, like that, yeah. that same dynamic, like she is using the history of that fear of black men to her advantage. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, this movie is kind of an inverse of Get Out. You know, um, it's mm -hmm. it's it's kind of interesting to have those two films in dialogue. Um, mm -hmm. I think one quote I'll just and I swear I'm not going to just read quotes, but oh, no, uh, from, no. from that Tribune article speaking to the scene in Candyman where the 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 boy is murdered and castrated in mm. the public bathroom, which you know is referencing what happens to whether unconsciously or consciously is referencing what has happened to a lot of black men who were lynched for daring to mm -hmm. even glance at a white woman. And um, right. this is the quote that I, I believe is from one of the the filmmakers. I think it's from Franklin. Um, As for Candyman's exacting revenge through violence against his own community, this too strongly reinforces white perceptions of blacks pitted against blacks. And this is the quote from the filmmaker. I was particularly offended by the castration of a young black man. If that had been a Jewish person and he was shown being killed in a gas chamber, the Jewish community would justifiably have been angry. Mm -hmm. So I think that this movie in a lot of ways was playing with ideas and tropes without really yeah. fully realizing what they were getting themselves into because yeah. they were British dudes yeah. writing it. <laughs> And that's the thing, I think, with Bernard Rose, he didn't set out to make this racist movie. Right. I think he actually wanted to really address disparities in class in, in along racial lines. But because he's coming from a British background and maybe doesn't have like that kind of lived in experience with it, you're going to have missteps at that point. And that doesn't mean the movie should be canceled. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it. It doesn't mean that you're a clans person if you enjoy this movie. <laughs> right. Right. It just means you need to kind of interrogate these things. And like we said at the start, there is a blueprint here for a much more aware movie that I think we're going to see in six months. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so, well, so it, fully clenched and ready for that exactly. movie. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Well, and th this was something that we were talking about a little bit before we started recording. Like, because I saw, I, I've been thinking, do I think this is a racist movie? And I want to say for the record, like I, as a white woman, don't get to decide what is racist to an African-American community. That's not up to me to decide. But when I look at whether it is racist or not, and when I look at whether a film is misogynist or not, I like to look at like the lens of the filmmaker and the way the film portrays characters. And I don't know if I necessarily think Candyman is itself a racist movie. I think, because I think it really looks at all, most of its characters as human beings and gives depth to them. I feel like it just falls mm -hmm. into racist traps and no. perpetuates racist stereotypes, basically just because I don't think it really understood what it was no. doing. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And I think maybe that's a good transition into talking about Helen, because yeah. Helen herself <laughs> as a character embodies all of the problems that we're discussing. Yep. A character that has a lot of positive traits, but is 
sort of irredeemably <laughs> racist and and privileged and um, just you know I, I I think there's arguments for her being a villain in this movie if not the villain a villain um, yeah but she you know that isn't to strip her of all of her humanity villains can be human and have human human elements but let's 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 talk about Helen <laughs> yeah and I think what really defines Helen for me on the last watch when I was really looking for this was just her lack of awareness yes. of the bias that she carries and the way her bias affects everyone else like there's this very lofty view I feel like she has yes. of everyone like she just traipses on in and is like no 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 it's fine I'm white they're gonna think we're cops I'm totally mm -hmm. fine to enter this community that I'm not at all a part of and Bernadette I got Bernadette with me so I'm good you know and yeah. just this demand that they share their their experiences with her yeah know? she she absolutely seems to have no awareness of the potential domino effect that she is going to cause by entering this space and really in a lot of ways the the events that occur she everything she does causes something horrific to happen to a person of color right mm -hmm. you have the mother whose dog is decapitated and her baby goes missing you have bernadette who ends up dead slaughtered and as Candyman says, like, you know, you, you didn't know, I can't blank it on the exact quote, but like, you didn't know exactly what you were doing. So I was obliged to come. Like you didn't right. believe in me. You so I was believe. obliged mm -hmm. to show up and show you what the fuck you were, you were treading right. in here. Well, it's black erasure. Like Candyman only returns after Helen has like, you know, after she, after Helen assaulted and she has like the Candyman of the neighborhood arrested and she's like, look, I've proved to you people that Candyman doesn't really exist. It's this person. All of those crimes you can pin on this person. That's when the actual Candyman feels like he needs to come back. It's because he's being erased. Um, part of me wonders, like, did Candyman slash Tony Todd's Candyman actually commit any of the murders in Cabrini Green? Or yeah. was he happy to be seen as a legend and as a myth and as long as his myth lived on he'd be happy to never physically return but once you erase him from history mm -hmm. that's when he needs to kind of reassert himself at that point yeah and that's kind of what i wanted i don't know if we want to talk about this now but or keep going with helen but that's kind of what i'm thinking yeah. about like when when i talk about what is monstrous because there's a reading of this that Candyman is not the villain and mm -hmm. that Candyman is a victim and maybe an anti-hero because i was watching it this time and i was like yeah i don't think he killed the little boy and side note i that for my feelings check i have decided i'm never watching that scene again because it is so upsetting it is one and of I the most disturbing moments in yeah. anything I've ever seen and because oh it just God. happens so quickly and brutally in the way it just like flashes on the screen and oh you can't God. doesn't give you a chance to look away it's the uh the Ari Aster yeah. move of like being like nope yeah. you're looking at it <laughs> and the mom yeah. and the son it just yeah, yeah it's horrible it's horrible but like I don't I re I choose to read this time that he didn't do that and that he yeah. did not kill Ruthie Jean I believe yeah that was mm -hmm. the character and scene. that he does and so what is his purpose like what is his mission because he does kill Bernadette he does kidnap a baby I mean we're assuming that he kills the dog mm -hmm. so what is his purpose in doing that and it's establishing his his power again and mm -hmm. creating this legend and what is the purpose of that legend is it to keep this community in line in air quotes so that they are not in danger from the mm -hmm. white people and is that I think that's my overall problem with the movie because while Helen bugs the shit out of me, I also have a lot of sympathy for Helen. And I think my overall problem is that there's no examination of the underlying root of all of this right. oppression. 
it, it the why is and i think um again Laura, like that that article in the tribune you mentioned i think it was hudlin that says like why is Candyman's raged at the white establishment that had him killed directed at a black community right like if that's the case like why is he turning all his anger why is he turning all his power towards the residents of this already oppressed community that had nothing to do you know with his demise like they're not they're not the descendants of the persons that had the candy man killed to begin with so again why is this just another example of like black on black crime Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is the 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 racist boogeyman right. statement that conserv mm-hmm. you know white conservatives like yeah. to use to demonize the black right. community, which they you know invent because if you actually look at it statistically, people when violence happens, it usually happens within communities. So exactly. no one ever's talking about white on white violence, even though that exactly. shit happens all the time. It's just exactly. who you know is yeah. who you commit violence onto. Yeah, I've gotten crimes, myself distracted with anger. No, uh, <laughs> most crimes tend to be areas of opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And areas of access. That's why they happen with our own within our own spaces. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a function of the patriarchal system. The white patriarchal system is to distract from the top and keep people fighting mm-hmm. to, for their place on the ladder. And I think we see that a lot in this movie is that like I, there's part of me that really wants Helen and Candyman to like end up together. And I know that sounds really I, stupid, but like to realize that they're both they're fighting each other mm. when they should be looking at the bigger picture. Right. It also know? doesn't help that they have incredible on-screen chemistry and right. Tony Todd is just, he's kind of, it was funny Ooh. watching this on the tail of Bram Stoker's Dracula because <laughs> they kind of have a, and I was like, oh no, I'm smashing my horny button again. Why mm. is this problematic dynamic always what, 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 what greases my ears? I'm sorry, that's <laughs> disgusting. No. But yeah, so it just, you know, this is one of those things where they've accidentally, I, you know, some of the the elements of this movie don't necessarily fit together in a way that is logical. They're, they're just, you know, you have two really great, very attractive performers that, <laughs> that have great chemistry together. Yeah. Besides, yeah. Virginia the Madison shows. is just absolutely stunning. In well, she's this movie. stunning, I mean, and she hey, is, the way they yes. light her. Wow. Yeah, the mm-hmm. way they light her face, they kept doing all these kind of noir yeah. um, close-ups with like the eyelights on her big, beautiful eyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and she's like, even when she's all like fucked up looking, she they make her mm-hmm. look just absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> like, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Apparently Bernard Rose went so far as to have her hypnotized in between yeah. those scenes. Like he was like, we're going to actually get you hypnotized during these takes right now. So what? those moments where she looks a little bit out of it at that point. Yeah, that's... Not she acting. talks about it. Yeah, not acting. That was like in um, one of the interviews on the Scream Factory Blu-ray. She talks about that. She's like, you're not going to be able to hypnotize me. And she's like, nope, it worked. So. Yeah, which is such an interesting parallel to get out also, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, oh, and, that's creepy. I feel creeped out. <laughs> I know. My other fun fact about this uh, is that Tony Todd apparently negotiated, because I think most of those were real bees. but they, yeah, bees. they were all yeah. real bees. Ooh, which mm, and apparently Virginia Madsen is allergic to bees. Yes. And that Tony Todd like negotiated in his contract that he got a thousand dollars for every sting, which I thought it's like And he got twenty three thousand dollars when Ooh. all was said and done. I honestly I that's a really good I think I w I think I would do it just because I really want more money right now. Um I think <laughs> if somebody I'm just saying if somebody wants to negotiate a deal with me, I will do yeah. it. Yeah. That's the, all the fear factor they, they kind they of situation. The scene at the end where he kisses Virginia Madsen, like when she's like, they had to use like basically hatchlings mm-hmm. that don't have stingers yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bernard Rose, she's like, yeah, he did not believe that I was allergic to bees. Like I had to go get tested 
many, many times to prove to him that I am allergic to bee stings and that could fuck me up. Uh, <laughs> because he was like, Ooh. allergic to bees? That's not a thing. Come on. So, it's just right. so stupid. <laughs> That's I, not I, like I, one I, of the big two I, big allergies that we have. Right. right now. That's my, now we're getting into my day job territory where I, we talk about uh, venom allergy testing oh. and shit like that. I think Helen's biggest issue is that she only extends grace towards people as far as it, they can serve her. Yes. Like as long as they can like basically promote her academic achievement, mm -hmm. she has a use for them. Like heading into this project, like she already has a really clearly defined idea of who the people at Cabrini Green are. Like she's carrying all that bias in with her. She's a collector of people. Like it's that it's the dude that Leslie Nope dates in Parks and Rec Justin. Oh, yeah. so it's, mm -hmm. he's a collector. She basically collects stories from her subjects mm -hmm. and they allow her to kind of feed her thesis, but there's no interest in those persons outside of the walls of that story. There's an argument that she definitely has like narcissistic tendencies because she oh, is yeah. just solely focused on her career. She even like sort of uses Bernadette as a tool to get what she wants. I think mm -hmm. that I think you most clearly see it in the way that she interacts with the little boy Jake, mm -hmm. um, just kind of like ignoring his fears and pushing him outside of his comfort mm -hmm. zone to the point that he's in very real danger just yeah. so that she can go get some photos of a shit covered public mm -hmm. bathroom. She yeah. also seems to think she's on this like national treasure style quest or like Da Vinci Code style quest that around mm -hmm. any corner she's going to discover the like smoking gun. And I think yeah. the idea of the anthropologist as this like white person exploring, you know, unsafe and othered spaces is really creepy to mm -hmm. me. Because she's existing in this anthropology world, but she's also like now I can see that through the lens of true crime and like looking at this story as entertainment. And I think a lot of this is that she is fascinated by these right. stories, but she doesn't believe any of them. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't like she's dismissive of them. Right. And like that's a very like Eurocentric, academic minded attitude of like, well, we know what Western medicine and Western science says. Mm -hmm. Um and so anything outside of that is bullshit because that's not our culture and it's not trying to learn another culture and understand why these things are important. It's saying, oh yeah, that's like Santa Claus. Like I think she even tells Jake that's a story like Santa Claus. And he's like, no, this is really important mm -hmm. to my survival in my culture. Yeah. But because he's like seven, he can't articulate that. Mm -hmm. right. And because she's a white person and part of this dominant culture, it's probably not safe for him to articulate it. Or right. does he understand that it is safe for him to say that? And she's completely unaware aware of how her continued presence in that project makes its residents nervous, not mm -hmm. because they feel like she's going to do something, but because her presence there is calling unwanted attention to themselves. Like mm -hmm. part of the way they're able to survive, it seems like in some ways they police themselves because they know that the cops aren't to. going to come up because they have to. But her presence in that community, I think it's Anne-Marie that says like, nothing good ever comes from having like a white person in this area like you need to go and you need to go now and what does she do she invites herself in for a cup of coffee at that point to hear and, her story. and one of the one of the articles i i read I, and i'm blanking on which one they basically state at that moment when she says you know you white people never yeah, the only the white folks that come around here only mean us harm and she looks at bernadette and then says that's not what we're trying to do so she includes bernadette mm -hmm. in the, in her whiteness yeah kind of erasing anything that Bernadette might have yeah. actually had to say for herself or her thoughts on the situation, which is like pretty fucked up. <laughs> like, right. 
she white splains red lining to Bernadette at mm-hmm. one point when they're right. sitting in her Kinda. like oh like yeah you know it's like and at one point Bernadette is like you don't understand like there are terrible things that happen here like it's a dangerous place like you're not supposed to be here right now and she completely dismisses instead of asking Bernadette and why do you feel like this like what could happen not you just like out of curiosity like what could go wrong if we're there she completely steamrolls her like well do you just want to write like a boring academic paper and i'm like you know if it means i'm not going to get armed absolutely give me a boring academic paper sure i will also say the way that bernadette talks about cabrini green is interesting to me because you know that's how white people in chicago growing up Mm -hmm. talked about cabrini green like she even says that like i don't even like to drive past there that's something Mm -hmm. you would hear all the time is like, don't even go near, don't even drive past. And that is kind of like hammered into your head about any housing project in Chicago was just like, don't even go near there. You might just get dragged out of your car. And I think it's like a really fucked up kind of take on it. And I think it's interesting that they gave that line to Bernadette and that also Bernadette was originally written by Bernard Rose to be a white woman. And the character was rewritten because of casting differences because Virginia Madsen was originally supposed to play Mm -hmm. the Bernadette character and Rose's wife was supposed to play Helen, but then Rose's wife got pregnant, and then they were like, "Oh, maybe we should rewrite this as a as a woman of color." And then so they give her these lines that mm-hmm. feel very white to me, um, yeah. and and it's and there's something like jar that jars there for me that like I would be I would much rather be watching this movie one from Bern with Bernadette as the protagonist, yes. yep. and and two like actually get to explore why she feels the way she feels and right. the things she says and. You know, I, I just then I think that's what is going to happen with the with the Nia DaCosta um, sequel slash reboot is we're going to get that perspective. But it's the whole movie. I'm like, uh, and also that that actress, um, she's Casey in, si- yeah, she's in Silence of the Lambs. Also, she's hot damn Clarice. Like she, but yeah. she, you know, yeah. got, got cast as, which is you know true of a lot of black actresses up until very very recently. We're only ever cast as like the understanding friend who doesn't yeah. cent- you know center themselves in the in the yeah. story at all. Yeah, listening to Rachel True talk about the different in in horror noir talk about the different line readings of "Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay?" <laughs> yes. Because that's what her character exists for, you know. Exactly. There's and there's a really interesting story to be told if if Bernadette is the lead. Are we approaching it from the perspective of like someone that like came from a project and was able to rise above it? And what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to leave that culture behind? Or is she someone that, you know, was raised in a more, you know, urbane, white or affluent, you know, right? And what would that mean? Or just like if she was still married to Trevor, you know, what the whole sociological phenomenon of like disdain towards black women that date black men, uh, white men, and also like black men that date white women within the African-American community as well. Mm-hmm. And like, how would you explore, you know, like, A, why would you date or marry Trevor to begin with? Because he's the worst. Yeah, he just yeah. sucks so hard. Yeah. Continuing oh, a God. trend that we see in every movie we cover, husbands are the worst. Um, <laughs> well, what I think is interesting about Bernadette, when I look at it in comparison to Get Out, is she she is the one who tells Helen, like, this is not safe. This is, and she's, coming from like she is still a black character or an African American character so she has that knowledge and she's trying to 
tell Helen, hey, this is not your community. You have not established this trust that people are going to let you barge in. And I think it's fascinating. And I think looking at her character compared to Anne Marie, and one of the reasons I think I don't necessarily see this as a racist movie is because I think there are characters like Bernadette and there are characters like Anne Marie. And I do not think all African American mm-hmm. characters in this movie are presented as a monolith with the same mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. But I think everyone else in Cabrini Green is. And I think that's a real kind of hallmark of the time. Um, And and because I found this article that I'm going to link called They Came In Through the Bathroom Window, which is always makes me want to sing the Beatles song. But it's a reference to the actual crime of or the actual murder of a woman named Ruthie Jean who lived in Mm -hmm. the Abbott building, which is another housing project. I'm going to link the article. It's really long, but it's really, really good. But it was written in 1987, I believe. And the word and it was just talking about what it was like to live in that community and how like the light bulbs would get stolen. So you were walking up pitch black staircases mm-hmm. um, and, and how like the phenomenon of being able to get in through someone's cabinet window, like that base essentially says you can't lock your apartment and there's nowhere else for you to go. And it, it was really, it's a really great article, but the word animalism came up over and over again to describe the people living in this community. And one of the quotes that I found in this was, Um, But the truth of the matter is far more complex. Since its creation, Cabrini Green was neglected by the city of Chicago, leading to disrepair in the housing units and virtually unlivable conditions for those within. The criminal element that grew out of the area was a direct response to the rampant poverty that afflicted its residents. The community desperately needed help from a government that treated them as disposable. And I screwed up where that came from. It came from an article called The Writing on the Wall, Candyman and the Specter of Racial Trauma. I'm going to link everything. But it's interesting. Interesting. I feel like the film doesn't interrogate why these conditions are the way they are. They just view them as this is what these people mm-hmm. are like. And we've got people like Anne Marie and she even says, I'm not one of them, right. you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's like another level of yeah. Bernadette, you know? Uh, yeah. And they, they, they you know, I, I feel like it was a very ham handed way of being like, well, not everybody in the projects is bad. Look at this young right. mother. Um, but it, it's just, again, it feels inauthentic because it's coming from a white lens. And, and I do think the Nia DaCosta remake is specifically going to get into that and in and the idea of gentrification because as i as mm-hmm. i mentioned by the time i was in high school cabrini green was almost totally dismantled but that's just the history of chicago in general is like let's let's move let's just move keep kicking people out further and yeah. further to different different housing projects and now the area that is cabrini green is one of the most gentrified it's lincoln park it is mm-hmm. um, really? i mean it's just like crazy to me like and like when i was in high school they had started it by building like a crate and barrel and a borders on like kind of one end of it and then you were just watching the gentrification roll um in that direction and mm-hmm. that's just that's so chicago and i, and I really I, I from what i understand of the the new Candyman movie it is really going to focus on that aspect of gentrification. So I'm really fascinated to see how they handle it in this movie. One of the things we just said there too, we talk about like Anne-Marie versus some of the other residents in the neighborhood, in the neighborhood. I think like it's our own biases that make us like see that I'm thinking specifically of the group of like teen boys or young men Mm -hmm. that first confront uh, Bernadette and Helen when they arrive, like you're meant to see them as like you know, and again, this is a racially coded word, thuckish. You're meant to see mm-hmm. them as maybe gangbangers. Mm-hmm. The reality is they don't do anything. Like mm-hmm. they're hanging out in the front and they're doing what, like, you know, like teenage boys often do. They act kind of like pricks. You know, they follow them a little bit. They yell 5-0, 5-0, but they're not 
physically impairing their w means to get in the building. They're not threatening them at any point. Like they never at any point say like, if you come in here, this is what's going to happen to you. They're genuinely curious. Why are these two very well-dressed persons that seem really out of place stepping into our world, which is a pretty natural reaction to have. Right. And what they're doing is they are warning the other residents that live there, hey, be on alert right now. Something might go down that can potentially harm our community. Right, so yeah. we're meant to see them as bad, but the reality is there's nothing necessarily bad. If anything, they're protecting their community and they're protecting their space. Yeah, because Helen is arguably just as much of a threat to them as they are to her. Yeah. And that's part of like what I want to talk about with Candyman too, is that, and Mike, you said earlier about policing themselves. Like when you have a system that the the mm -hmm. official systems just ignores mm -hmm. because in that article they talk about like the call when Ruthie Jean was being murdered she called the police and apparently there were a lot of crank phone calls that would come from that area so they just didn't take it, the threat seriously and so when you have a system that is forced to survive outside of the system they create their own mm -hmm. systems and that's where I think Candyman wow. that's what I think he really wants is to get that power and if that power comes from monstrosity then it's better than no power at all you know or well, arguably, is it better than no power? And I think it's it's one of the things that Rose really did try to point out was the disparities in injustice between white and black spaces. Well, literally, because we've got the two buildings, you know? Yep. Well, you right. have the black police chief say, like, yes, we believe this person is guilty of 25 murders. But because nobody in his community would snitch on him, we never did anything about it. Because apparently in Chicago in the early 90s, forensic evidence doesn't exist. And there's no way to potentially get any other evidence like finger. I mean, like when you look at that crime scene of the in the men's room, it is not like a Dexter quality crime scene that we're looking at here. Like <laughs> DNA all over that bathroom. There is DNA all over the place in yeah. that bathroom. The cops will just bust in and do like arrests and drug busts and all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff, but they won't come in to invest right. to properly investigate a murder is pretty convenient. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things, and it's a really like uh, the, and I can't, if you are interested in this movie at all, like pick up the Screen Factory Blu-ray because there's, it's A, it has like the rated and unrated version. B, like a friend of the pod, Heather Buckley, has produced a lot of the segments on it and they're just incredible behind the scene segments. One of them, there's a, an interview with uh, Tana Reeve Du, a writer and professor of, um, a black horror history class at UCLA. And she also does this class online at, I think it's www.ucla.org slash sunken place. Oh. So if you want to take the course, you can do it. And she, she and her husband, Steve Morris, another writer of horror and sci-fi talk about how these communities are both over and under policed. Like they're over policed in that you'll have things like stop and frisk. And mm -hmm. if you just happen to look suspicious for WWB, like walking while black, you will get pulled over. You will get questioned. You will get accosted. But when there's actual crime, then it's like, oh, not much we can do right now. You know, don't yeah. know how we're going to solve this one. So it's one of the things that you actually, one of the phenomenons they actually talk about with regards to this movie. It's not until Helen goes into the space and gets, let's see, she does get assaulted and like they are right to arrest this man for what he did to her. But that's what it took for, and she even points it out, 
that's what it took for the police to actually get involved. Mm -hmm. And then once they did, they found him pretty quick, you know? Yes. Within a day. Yeah. And what they said, they said like, well, we just started from the top down. We just swept the whole building. And they basically, you can picture in your head, a whole SWAT team of officers going in, kicking down doors and moving floor to floor. Which mm-hmm. is a danger to everyone else who's living there. And yeah. it's just it's just a complex system of, I, I love how you said over-police and under-police. I think that's mm-hmm. exactly what it was. Um, mm-hmm. And I also want to say that this, I believe, was actually shot in Cabrini-Green. And some more. of the people of it. in it are actual residents mm-hmm. of Cabrini-Green. And I know yeah. there's, I'll try to find an article I read a while ago, but there there was a, there'd probably be a really interesting oral history of um shooting this in that area because mm-hmm. i know that it was because it, it was dangerous you know yeah. for all the reasons that we're talking mm-hmm. about and i think there's an opportunity here to like if i were bernard rose and i was saying okay we want to make it real we want to like my i think what i would tell myself is i want to humanize people that live here and mm-hmm. i want to present what it actually is but i don't feel like they i don't feel like they go quite far enough because yeah. i still think they present everybody who doesn't have a name as a monolith yeah they're kind of like literally at the end they all come like to you know surrounding the bonfire like as a as a big mass of faceless sort of people Mm -hmm. and then come marching in line to the the funeral i mean Mm -hmm. they they do try to characterize i'm blanking on the 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 mother characters amory 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 and and jake the boy you know as sort of individualized characters but they i agree they don't go far enough it's kind of like if you're going to tread into this territory you better really do the work to right. get it right or you know as as you know we are seeing got some very very valid criticism and anger directed at it so it's a really good first draft on exploring some racial issues but exactly Jen, I would love to hear your thoughts on like Helen is the white savior. I know that's something. And while yes. we're talking about Helen, maybe now's a good time to kind of bring that up. Yeah, I have such complex thoughts about Helen because there's a, a big part of me that really wants to identify with her. And uh, and the movie wants me to identify with her because the movie centers her story. And even like it's even written on the wall. It was always you, Helen. Like the mm-hmm. movie, what it does is essentially replaces Candyman's trauma with Helen's trauma. And it equates um, her being cheated on by her husband with being lynched. And that this is a a trauma on par with what Candyman suffered. And so now she has become monstrous. What I love about it and what I think I really take from this movie is I think Candyman really confronts her with her white privilege and Mm -hmm. threatens that white privilege because what i said earlier like the system turns on her and takes all of that away which i think is fascinating yeah she kind of gets the the criminal justice experience of a black person in america and not what you typically see directed at a white woman yeah well and she also like she has been studying these stories and now she is one and she Mm -hmm. sees the other side of she sees being on the inside and she she's not looking down from her lofty academic position anymore she is living the reality of that and I think that's really effective and I love that and I love the idea that she she becomes monstrous too and that she I just have a there's a lot of power in that for me as somebody Mm -hmm. who's kind of exploring like what it means to be a witch and what that involves. Mm -hmm. Like I find a lot of empowerment there. I think the big problem here is that it replaces Candyman's story and all of that exists on the backs of this. Like she has to use someone else's story to learn this thing about herself. And it's presented as 
not even equal. It's presented as this was Helen's learning tool. And so Helen has become the more important person because she is a member of Mm -hmm. the dominant culture. And so her story is more valid is what the movie is saying, not what I'm saying. The the final image of the movie before you cut to credits is literally a mural of like an angelic looking Helen overseeing like you know now it's like implied that she's going to be watching over this community going mm-hmm. forward and yeah, that's a like, good thing and it's, it's like, like like literally whitewashed because like his murals are you know are painted over mm-hmm. by her mural it's like it couldn't be like it's like no <laughs> why no it be any more on the nose than that right right a couple other things like when it comes to helen that i pointed out when re-watching i think i sent you guys like a picture uh when i was doing my rewatch of it like the way that Helen is contrasted versus others uh, visually by Bernard Rose. When she first drives into Cabrini Green, it's a overhead shot of her little like coupe car pulling into the projects. And it's this bright red flashy car, this one spot of color against this unbelievably like muted color landscape. Like you have dull grays, browns, the greens are all faded. Even all the other vehicles in here are just like completely rusted out. And you have this one splash of color. And again, just contrasting Helen against this area that she's kind of moving into. And then from there, you go to Anne-Marie telling her the story of Ruthie being murdered and how that community was completely ignored and how nobody believed them. You smash cut from that to the restaurant scene where they're enjoying a bottle of wine that if I were to estimate, it would probably cost as much as maybe like half a month's rent for the persons in Cabrini Green. You have just this opulence that is all around you, these decadent wood panels. And you just, it's almost like you're not interrogating what you just experienced at all. You immediately retreat to this like world of academia and world of privilege without any consideration. I, I will say just as a brief aside that I think it's very funny that the these filmmakers thought that you could afford this lifestyle, including the condo and fancy restaurants on mm-hmm. a UIC professor salary and a grad mm-hmm. student's like stipend. It's just right. like right. those people would have no money at all. But it's kind of beside the point. They're doing the fancy Hollywood. There's thing. there's always this idea that academia, like you get all this, you know, you're rich, you're wealthy, you have like you can afford as many books as you you can do not read all those books in a lifetime, mm-hmm. let right. alone put them on your shelf. And the reality is like it's book crates in secondhand and uh-huh. Yeah. And you're living in a one bedroom apartment. Yeah. It's just like, right. or just stacked on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What I think is interesting about that scene and the thing that stood out to me is when um, Benjamin Franklin professor <laughs> <laughs> is telling yes. the story of Candyman. Uh, I was watching it with Corey last night and he looked and he's like, Benjamin Franklin's in this movie. Um, and that, that character is fascinating. And I kind of love him as a caricature of academia itself. Yes. You know? <laughs> with the pa- the t- <laughs> yeah, just such a oh, raging yeah. Brit- and they make they make him British and like, you what? know, it's just, he couldn't be more on the nose. I mean, I, I think you, you, you have a thing in your notes though, Mike, about um, he is an asshole, but he's right. Yeah. He is. Yeah. He's this awful sexist. He's like, how are the most two most beautiful women in grad Uh school? And, you know, if one of the women in your grad school is Virginia Madsen, she probably is one of the two most beautiful women 
but you don't have to point that, that out. Too. Like right. it's not necessarily to her research. Yes, right. they, it's those two are unquestionably beautiful. But why, yes. dear God, are you saying this that, to me right now? Why is that? What? You, why are you leading with that? In, and also in front of her husband too. Like, dude, what are you doing? He knows you he's know? she's cheating, so he exactly. feels like he can horn in. Also, husband friend is going to be a dick too. But he's so yeah, arrogant. He's so condescending. But he's not wrong. He's like you're trespassing in these spaces and you don't even know the origin of the myth he's like look and like he volunteers his services without them asking which again is not something you do you know if he were to say like hey if you ever want me to take a look at it ring me up i'm there for you but he assumes they're going to want his expertise mm -hmm. but he is right it's like i did write the paper on this 10 years ago i am the head he's probably the one paying for the dinner he's probably the mm -hmm. head of the department at the university so he's like oh i'll take that check you know because he, he can probably be the dude that swings it but he when he tells Candyman's story he also imbues it with a level of sympathy and tragedy that belies mm -hmm. the rest of his character like he actually feels for like this is a horrible thing that happened to this right. person and he is deserving right. of our sympathy but he's right like she tells him like and one of her one of helen's biggest flaws is her arrogance and she's mm -hmm. like we're about to bury you and, and he's like bitch you don't even know the story right? exactly he is, he's you know? absolutely right in that moment I, I i remember even the first time i saw this feeling like super embarrassed for mm -hmm. her at that moment yeah. right yeah. well and she doesn't seem to really care much about that story throughout no. the rest of the movie she's way more interested in the 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 myth of it which i mean yeah. I, that's fine i guess that's what her story is about but like what i what struck me is the way they present that story because I think I had it in my mind that there's kind of, maybe it's because we just watched Dracula, that there's some kind of animation or some kind of recap. But it's not. It's on her face, and we hear the sound of it. And I think that was a really fascinating yeah. choice, given what Helen's arc ultimately ends up being. Is she is She's becoming like a secondary witness of this story. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that it does affect her. I think mm -hmm. it just doesn't really she doesn't carry it forward she doesn't she doesn't introspect on it at all like why no. is this affecting me she's just like i'm gonna pig-headedly pursue my goal and i'm not mm -hmm. gonna pause to reflect on any of the things that are going on in the background or that really should be in the foreground because um, it's entertainment it's you know? yeah i think i think the recollection of of the animation that might come from like, i know last summer uh, mr costa released like a two-minute teaser mm -hmm. for Candyman that was done in that kind of animated style which kind of reach it recounts like generations of black trauma through this really incredible like animation and pup and some puppetry i think so that might be where the recall comes for that uh yeah. i know that came out last year there's also that sequence later in the film where we're looking at the murals and being reminded mm. of what happened and there's like the the vocals over the murals so i think it's all kind of tied together and that might be what was in my head for this scene but i think it's interesting and and no. i kind of want to go back to the white savior thing because i think when <laughs> when mike you when you asked about that i kind of launched into this other mm -hmm. aspect of helen and i want to say for the record too i think there is value in a story where a white woman examines her privilege yeah i don't love that it is the center and i also think that it's there's value in a story that centers a white woman under trying to understand racism i think the problem is that there are so few stories told about the black community in this right. movie that to center that story effectively erases because you you can't assume that your audience is going to bring the level of historical knowledge mm -hmm. necessary to really understand the rest of it. It's just, it's really her, her refusal to interrogate anything and to see anything outside of her own story, which I think is, is. To me, it's not being a savior. It's cleaning up your own mess. 
because mm -hmm. she's the one that has caused all this to begin with. Mm -hmm. So she's really, all she's doing is cleaning up her own mess. Like she's not really helping these people. All she's done is she's reset the status quo. And the yeah. fact that she like, when she escapes the institution, the first place that she goes is her own apartment. She's mm -hmm. trying to escape the situation. It's only until she realizes that she's bereft of all other options that mm -hmm. she's like, oh shit, that baby <laughs> that's missing. Right. You know, rather than living with that guilt, because I would say there's an argument that like, maybe she did do something to the baby maybe she you know we don't really know we don't because know. we never actually see mm -hmm. what candy man that candy man does it so i feel like even right. in her own head that she doesn't have when she's talking to the doctor she says even in my most the most hidden part of myself there's no way i would ever do that right. she never admits that she could have some culpability in this mm -hmm. situation and so it really is only when she has no other choice and no. nowhere else to go that she goes and helps helps and tries to figure out what's going mm -hmm. on maybe the baby is still alive maybe he's yeah. somewhere you know it, it it's like it shouldn't take being pushed to that extreme right. to be like hey maybe i should try and figure out you know solve this this chain of events that i put in motion and that's right. really disturbing to me and to me what makes Candyman more tragic than monstrous is what he's trying to do with the baby and with Helen is he's trying to reunite the family that was taken from him. Yes, mm -hmm. Like exactly. that's the whole idea of him. And that's, you know, like I put this elsewhere in my notes, like, do we actually know how the myth of Candyman works? Because to me, this is another instance of say, black culture being reappropriated for white persons. And I think mm -hmm. that's why the first time you hear about Candyman is from like a white suburbanite who talks about like her, uh, friend of a friend's like bad boy boyfriend ted yeah. ramey played by ted oh, ramey <laughs> yeah. ted ramey he's like oh they said it five times in the mirror like well is that how because it's not how Candyman actually works in the rest of this movie like when helen right. and her friend say his name five times he doesn't immediately appear and go like boogity boogity like bagul from sinister he basically like waits until he's been erased so do we actually know how the myth works or is that another case of you know black culture being appropriated by white persons much like rock and roll was much like hip-hop had been well, it's like tragedy shorthand you know yeah. now i will say the this the sequel um farewell to the flesh have you have either of you seen it you know i never actually have i, I should mm -hmm. watch it just to complete the conversation mm -hmm. in my own head but well i it's it's not very good um that's why i haven't watched it i've heard <laughs> that it sucks so i've just like yeah. never bothered yeah but what the movie does well, I think, is it does really examine the origin story. Mm -hmm. And I think it's still kind of, it almost feels like a retcon of trying right. to, like, force these things together. Because I think what they ultimately did was take pieces of Clive Barker's story and pieces yep. of American mythology and pieces of horror movie right. lore and just mashed it all together. And I think the the Farewell to the Flesh one does really examine the root of this and the the people that were involved in Candyman's death he does have a name in that movie and he has a mm -hmm. lot more humanity it's just not as good mm -hmm. film wise I feel just from what you're describing it also feels a little bit like some of the Hellraiser sequels where they try to like humanize Pinhead and give him a right. backstory and stuff like this which is like I feel like this movie emerged from a slasher horror tradition and tried to give it substance but didn't really put the substance first they put the slasher first and therefore it's just kind of like it's not doing justice to the heaviness and the, and the realness mm -hmm. of the stuff that they were kind of using to amplify the horror yeah. it's kind of like you when you 
it's a it's a good object lesson and like if you're a writer you know like you can't just yeah. use these things for the tropes like you're really dealing with some shit that deserves its own story here right um, yeah well and so I think I found my Helen thing in my brain so like if I look at because Helen is essentially becomes like the anti-hero of this movie so and if we just for a second like say okay if this were Helen's story and we're okay with it being Helen's story which for the record we're not really um what should she do you know how could she actually help this community because she does rescue the baby although the filmmaker gives that role to her but the problem is she is not interested in understanding what this community actually needs like this community doesn't need another boogeyman because arguably Helen is more of a threat to them than Candyman would be and so now she's positioning herself as literally the white savior I'm going to fight on your behalf because I know what it's like to be oppressed which is something that I've said a lot but she does not ever look at her privilege and the fact that she has that power like why does she have this power from her dominant culture status and how could she use that to help the community empower themselves instead of just being this like overshadowing protector for them like I look at her as like the patron saint now of Cabrini Green because she's had this trauma happened to her but not because she has tried to understand what would actually help that community mm-hmm. I just mm. okay well so because we've talked a lot about K- Helen let's circle back a little bit to Candyman because I do want to talk a little bit more about Candyman's role in this community and we've talked a little bit about him finding power through fear and there's the scene not to go back to Helen but like I love the scene where she comes in and they're painting the walls this hideous color and just the fear that everyone is looking at her with and I think that's the first time she's really grappling with being someone to be feared and how like othering that can be but also empowering in this kind of anti-hero way and I feel like that's what Candyman is really seeking in this movie you know yeah he's seeking I mean he's seeking power because he has been obliterated mm-hmm. right because that's the only power he can get and yeah. so the other thing that I noticed is there is a threat there's a undercurrent of children in danger in this movie Jake is put in danger by Helen herself and and it's implied that he just exists in a dangerous culture and then baby Anthony is put in danger and then also by Helen <laughs> also by Helen yes yes but there's also the kid who is just god it's so hard to fucking talk about that but the yeah. kid who is assaulted in the bathroom like there's this element of the younger generation in danger for not believing this myth which I think to tie it back to generational trauma that's the reason these stories exist is to present the norms the cultural norms that we exist inside of because this is not necessarily safe but known it's like the devil you know is safer than the devil you Mm -hmm. don't and yes Candyman might be scary but he is a de facto patron saint and you know he every once in a while we might need a sacrifice and I'm not saying that's good but that's the culture that exists here you know just now that you mention it I mean Another person I would rather see this movie from their perspective is Jake, you know, I mean, yeah. I feel like this movie in a lot of ways is trying to do too much. And the 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 threat of children in danger and trying to make sense of their circumstances uh, is a really interesting one. And it reminds me of um, Tigers Are Not Afraid, mm-hmm. which is on Shutter, which is, you know, 
focused on children who have lost their parents to like drug cartel violence and, and how they cope with that and how it becomes kind of like their their own little their own little world it's a fucking masterpiece but it's beautiful yeah yeah that's just as a thought that i hadn't I hadn't actually connected that as being a theme in this movie of like child children in danger and trying to cope with it um i feel like children in danger and trying to cope with it and then inventing a boogeyman to protect them would be like kind of an interesting story but again mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting potential threads in this film that weren't fully realized yeah well and that's an element of the generational trauma is that it's passed down through generations mm-hmm. um as as a warning you know parents who are hyper vigilant are hyper vigilant to protect their children from the same trauma that they experienced and i think that's what we see with a lot of the children here and it's really upsetting mm-hmm. it's, um, it's incredible it's yeah and i mean that is the root of generational trauma is like how do you especially how do you fix these things that are actually very harmful to you as a person when you're still living in that danger? The trauma is ongoing and it hasn't ended. So these things are still in some ways adaptations that that like hypervigilance and, and you know distrust of outsiders are actually things that protect you. And, yeah. how, and how do you navigate that? Well, and that's kind of what we talked about with Get Out is to, to all the Helens out there, like use that privilege not to become a protector of the community but to examine the the reason there's a divide in the community and to try to do what you can not to I feel like I'm fucking losing my train of thought again but like that's what that's what we can do and that's how we as white people can help is to really really just try to understand and I think that's Helen's biggest flaw is that she is not interested in understanding anything but her own culture I yeah. think that's, you know, when we say like we're losing our train of thought, I think this is what happens when we want to provide an answer, but don't know what answer to provide. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's something that we see, you know, I see it in counseling a lot where like you, if someone tells you they're having a problem, the, the mode we go into by default is we want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like w- what we need is understanding, what we need is to listen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what if Helen were to serve that community, the best thing she could do would be to really not to really listen to their stories and not just like note them down and see how they fit within the context of like this paper that she's going to write, but like actually listen to their stories and maybe use her platform as a way to kind of amplify their stories and being, because that's really what we see. And one, and one of the ways that we see progress being made in these areas is when we hear stories, when their stories are amplified whether it's through photographs, whether it's through video, whether it's through movies, like to me, like, and Jen, you and I were talking off air about this part of like what I would like to see are persons from marginalized communities get more normalized roles in movies, like not yes. have not have that their thing being like, well, I'm a trans person and that's the only thing that defines me. Like, give me a role where a trans person like works in a coffee shop, writes a boring blog and that's really it. That's all that is about them. Give me like 50 roles like that played by yeah. trans people, of course. So you can normalize these behaviors and then right, right, right. more understood. Write the story first and then cast mm-hmm. cast with diverse right. you know, characters. You don't just, just because mm-hmm. you write a role, there have been more and more media doing a slightly better job of that with representation. Yeah. And I, I do think it is, it's a good first step yeah. In, yeah. in starting to repair the way that media mm-hmm. has sort of created a lot of you know stereotypes well and there's Mike the listening that you're talking about that's something I've been talking a lot Mm -hmm. about in therapy too um just kind of how Corey can help me kind of work through some of my past trauma and the concept of holding space 
is something that we've been coming back to a lot. And I mm-hmm. think that's maybe that's why the scene of Helen listening to the story and being affected by it affected me so much, because I mm-hmm. think that's a moment where she's inching into holding space for the pain, mm-hmm. because it's not just listening to the story. It's understanding the hurt that has come from this and the yeah. trauma and the pain. And I feel like that's kind of in 2021, something that we're all kind of reckoning with is yeah. that God, there's a, f- a fuck ton of pain that we all really need to unpack. You know, can you, can you define holding space? Yes. Okay. So, and that's something that it took me a while to really understand because I need to do that for myself. So holding space means I say, like, I listen and I, I don't try to solve, but I also allow room for there to be pain and for there to mm-hmm. be hurt. And for like, I think sometimes like if I wanted someone to hold space for me, I would tell them my story and they would just let me cry and yeah. say, it is okay to cry over this. This is not something that one, I need to solve or two, you need to solve right now. The purpose of that is to get the pain out. And because that's, that's when we can see it and we can do something with it. And I think as white people, we are really, really opposed to hearing about that pain because I think that's what taps us into our guilt. And I think that's what keeps us from trying to understand because there's understanding in an academic way. And then there's understanding in an empathetic way. And I feel like that's where we get stuck when we talk about race is we don't want to understand how much this hurt Mm -hmm. and how much hurt has been caused. We talked a little bit about it during the Gremlins episode where I, you know, mentioned, I'm like, why am I uncomfortable with this discussion right right now? And I think that the problem is that I make it more about myself and my own views and not what, you know, the other person is trying to tell me about their own experience about it. So there's a difference between like listening and hearing someone. To me, when you're hearing somebody, what you're doing is you're like hearing the words they say, but you're already forming a counter argument in their head as they're speaking. So if like, if Anne-Marie is telling her story and her experience in Cabrini Green and in Hellenism, me like, well, let me tell you why you're wrong about, and these are the things that are actually affecting you right now. We're listening to someone to what you just said, I think put really well. So wonderfully, Janice, it's not necessarily about fixing it in that moment, but giving that person the chance to just get their narrative out there because we're all the, all the main character in our own stories. We all want the best possible outcomes for ourselves. And deep down, what we really want is more than anything else, we want to feel like we're heard. And I know it's something that I've worked with persons with in counseling. I'm like, what you're trying to do is fix something, but you're not listening to why it's bothering them. You know, they're not a leaky valve that's under the kitchen sink that you're going to tighten a couple lug nuts and like, we're all fixed at that point. Like you actually need to like, shut up, maybe ask some questions, but don't make it about yourself. And, And that's exactly what Helen does is she has this thesis. She has an idea or hypothesis, and she is going to make that a reality no matter what she actually learns along the way rather than saying i'm gonna keep an open mind and write down what i'm hearing and really listen Mm -hmm. and then come to a conclusion based on what people are saying to me she already had her conclusion it was it was foregone and everything she did was in service to that conclusion and that was her her sin Mm -hmm. well is there anything we would like to talk about before we move on just how much trevor sucks 
Oh, God. Oh, okay. Okay, so I got two more things I want to talk about. One is how much Trevor fucking sucks in this movie. I, I mean, him. he's just so awful. And, like, Helen has her own problems, but, like, mm -hmm. he, the, the shit with Trevor is just a separate issue. <laughs> I well, but, I mean, it's kind of the same issue because Helen exists. Like, Trevor is replacing Helen with a younger model because Helen is disposable to him in the right. same way that, you know. And I, and I think it's really interesting that at the end of the movie, he really misses Helen mm -hmm. um, rather than just being like, thank God she's gone and I've got my hot new girlfriend. Like he, mm -hmm. he really is mourning what was actually a substantial connection. And in some ways I'm like, do, do Helen and Trevor kind of deserve each other? <laughs> like they both kind of, <laughs> they, they both really kind of suck, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. I also, as a person who's terrified of food poisoning, like she's handling that meat at the very end. Oh, I know. Very fast and loose. <laughs> like, I know. I know. It's just, it's, gonna it's disgusting. The fact that you would just have like loose, uncovered meat ready to go in the fridge bothers yeah. me. <laughs> that you just throw all over the place. Yeah. You know? Oh my God. I wear whatever. I eat very little meat. And the only thing I do is chicken. And I hate prepare. I wear plastic gloves. Me I too. make sure to sterilize as I go. It is... <laughs> I know. So that I, scene always bothers gonna, me. Yeah. I, I prepare meat like she does. No gloves. <gasps> I wash, you know, I wash my hands, but no gloves. I'm playing fast and loose with oil and flipping things around and coating things. And monster. If, like, if, if I don't get all the coating on it, I'm like in the seasoning and I'm getting my hands in there. And yeah. There's probably some beard hair in my chicken. No, <laughs> no, Mike, no. I mean, so, it'll, the germs burn off. <laughs> but so, yeah, that, that part does really Trevor is, me. again, I'm just going to write like a horror movie where the husband does nothing but does a few chores, makes dinner. Like his number <laughs> one vice is he just plays too many video games on Saturday. And he's like, hey, honey, how was your day? And she's like, not now, ghost. He's like, right, you get to it. And then that's it. You know, like that's, yeah. he's really... I will say, I just, this made me think of that. And I don't know why, like one of my fam favorite horror marriages is Insidious, mm -hmm. the Patrick Wilson and Rose, what is her name? Rose Byrne. Rose Byrne. Rose Byrne. Yeah. yeah. Like they actually are both decent people that get kind of like sucked into unfortunate circumstances, but they yeah. try really hard to be good to each other. Like I, I yeah. always like, I just have a crush on that marriage. <laughs> well, the last thing that I want to talk about, and I just want to mention this for a minute is how fucking creepy this movie is. Some of the imagery yeah. in it, when oh, she yeah. crawls through the mouth, that mm -hmm. is amazing. It's I love beautiful. it so much. Oh my God. I think the photography and the way that all the elements combine together, um, it's just that on a purely aesthetic level, is just wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And anytime there's a saying something in a mirror element, like, and I grew up like hearing that legend from a, a local witch here. Um, but I also love the fact that they say the name five times and then they just don't turn the light out. And this might have been where the seeds of me wanting to sleep with my light on came from, because there's this element of like the power is not turning the light out. Although we see Candyman kind of plays fast and loose with those rules anyways. Mm -hmm. But I just, I love the pan out that the bathroom light is still on. Yeah. That gets me creeps me out every time the staring into the vacant apartment all the way mm -hmm. down the hall and I'm telling you read yeah. this article about um what it would be like to live in an apartment where anybody could crawl in through your bathroom through a hole in your bathroom wall it really gave me the creeps when I was reading it last night and that is real lived experience for so many people mm -hmm. so um all that to say 
I'm going to link a ton of stuff. And I also, um, I try to link stuff in the, sh- the actual show notes, but we also run an article on Consequence of Sound that goes with every episode. And that has all of the links in it as well as kind of like a summary of the show and a link to the episode. So if you're just finding our episodes in the podcast feed and you're wanting to find more about it, um, look for that on social media or go to consequenceofsound.com because there's a lot of stuff that we mm-hmm. put in there. And I think that's what we usually link on Instagram, right? That's like the, the link yes. in bio will automatically load up those yeah. episode articles for you. Yeah. Yep. And we can't actually link in Instagram, but the we have a link tree attached to our site. Yep. And I do like the link is on Twitter. So if you follow us on social media, look for that too. So let's move on. And I know we're running a little long, although like if there's any movie that's going to go long, yeah. I think... I have loved this conversation. I do want to just really quickly touch on other mental health topics that we see. And the only one that I really saw is that Helen is institutionalized and she is drugged without her consent, which I'm not necessarily saying is problematic, but that is represented in the film. And I wanted to mention it. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say to be fair, <laughs> no, I, I I agree. I think she, she has just she slaughtered a bunch of people. Yeah, that's true. Like, although, like, what is that? Is Candyman raising the baby for a month? Like, I'm just picturing like mm-hmm. Candyman yeah, cradling him, a baby. Yeah, he gives yeah. him. He feeds him the blood from his fingertip. He goes, mm-hmm. just, yeah, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Feeder. yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of like, and he's. It's not the most well hidden baby, you know. In the words, no. like right in the you know, right in the building. So it's weird to me, but yeah, she wakes up and like a month of her life is gone. And like the orderlies that are, war- the nurses that are working with her are like are complete dicks. Like mm-hmm. I want to go to Disneyland. Like, right. okay, you know, just. Yeah. But yeah, it is, Um, it's not great. Yeah. And that's one of those things where not at all the focus of the movie. So I get mm-hmm. it. It actually kind of like supports the, the system turns yeah. on you narrative. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I will never not find funny her escape because you have this like nurse who's like looking, oh, there's a woman crawling around on the wedge and she's wearing a hospital, Johnny. I'm just going to open the window and let her in. And then she's immediately knocked out while this other patient who's like basically drugged out. Right. It's just like, uh, this is weird. I'm like, is escaping from a mental, like a mental asylum that easy? And then eight nineties, like, was that all it took? Like, she's like the Joker breaking out of Arkham she, Asylum. She does have a, a Joker like quality by the end of this. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of the things in this movie take take logical leaps, and it kind of fun, you know, yes. like. What was the what were the logistics of passing out in the parking garage to ending mm-hmm. up in this apartment covered in blood? Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like there is a like psychic uncertainty to this this movie that I'm not sure works for or against no. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so let's also talk about what other movies, speaking of Arkham Asylum, <laughs> that we see <laughs> this kind of generational trauma in, and I'm kidding. Um, Joker 2019. Just kidding. No, no. <laughs> oh. I still haven't seen that, actually. It's, um, it's not it's not very good. Which is, yeah, it was, it was like, just watch yeah, King of Comedy happened. and Taxi Driver, save yourself the good. trouble. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, a movie I think you should watch, and the, the only one I had mentioned is Attack the Block, which I am obsessed with. It's um, set in London and it's set in a housing project there, and it stars John Boyega. It's got some of the coolest aliens I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So, so good. Um, do you have any that you want to mention? Just, I mean, I, I only occurred to me that Tigers Are Not Afraid has some interesting thematic overlap, if not literal overlap, with what happens. 
That's and we've all been I got. peppering these things kind of in through our conversation. Mm-hmm. I also want to say again, Lovecraft Country, which I I realize is not uh, is problematic in ways, but I think they do a really interesting job of like weaving in black history and black culture, yeah. Yeah. like Candyman. This that show has some problems, but it has some great moments and, and yeah. does some really amazing things um it as does, well yeah. I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. here i'd right. say like the watchman limited series as well does some things with racial history that are um i still haven't seen that i really want to oh, see that so good oh no. and now it's time for an uplifting moment I should put the Candyman music in there. Maybe I will. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God, it's so good. All right. This is where we share any grounding or coping techniques or any self-care that's been particularly effective for us. Um, So grounding and coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, mantras, practices that help us get through the tough times. And self-care is anything we do to make us feel good or feel better. And does anyone have anything they would like to share? If nothing's jumping out, I can take a minute to talk about brain spotting. Please do, because I have been on the struggle bus as of late (laughs) with self-care. So, (laughs) Yeah, I'll have one thing really brief, but do the brain. Um, So I've been doing um, brain spotting therapy, and I'm a couple of months in, and it's fascinating. And we could maybe, I'm not going to go super deep into it, but I just wanted to talk about it a little bit because I was kind of nervous about it. Um, and I'm finding that it's doing a lot of good. So if what brain spotting is, is if you imagine looking at a focal point, like look at a focal point on the wall and then imagine a line going back in through your eyes into the spot in your brain that corresponds with that focal point. Mm-hmm. Now move your eyes to another focal point and that should activate another part of your brain. So the idea is that we store emotions and memories in these spots in our brains and by holding our gaze to a spot we can kind of drill down into the things that are stored in that spot so what I do when I go into the session is I think of a thing that I want to talk about like one of the things that I talked about yet the other day was um, being touched in a particular part of my back like I've had a lot of reactions trying to figure out what the fuck was going on there so I just thought about that and I found where my eye wanted to go and I just kept looking there and so and then I just kind of sat for a minute and then started talking about what came into my mind and it's fascinating it feels like peeling the layers of an onion down because I've gone to this tweet made me feel sad to my dad didn't want to be around me when I was crying as a baby like it's going to these really deep levels and I'll go through like waves of being really angry and waves of being really sad and it's really helping me kind of piece apart why triggers affect me some like that like I've talked about the water through the pipes like being a trigger for me and I have no idea why and so that is the kind of thing I could bring to a brain spotting session and I've found that it is it's making me more sensitive because I think it's just kicking things up a lot more but it's really effective I will also say if you're going to do this I would plan nothing important for the rest of the day because man it takes me Mm -hmm. out and my therapist is like make sure to drink lots of water like I will just sit I watched Cobra Kai for the rest (laughs) of the day but it's it's great I'm really enjoy I I don't want to say enjoying it it's been really effective it's been beneficial I think it's okay to say something that you have enjoyed something challenging also I don't I have yeah. yeah 
yeah, yeah I feel I'm like doing I'm some reading on it and it's an area that I would love to get some training in because you do need to be trained in you do this you can't just be like your guarded variety therapist like myself you right. need to like actually get some real uh training in that and that's one of the areas I would like to learn more about it's man it's fascinating and maybe when we we get patreon up maybe that can be like a a bonus or if you yeah. are interested in this and you want to reach out you know <laughs> And my therapist actually referred me to another person in her practice yeah. because she is not trained in that. So, yeah. Yeah. The only thing for me for in terms of like self-care right now, I'm trying to get back into better physical health. I think I've mentioned my weight like a few times and I'm definitely feeling bigger than I normally am. And I'm usually pretty round to begin with. So I definitely have some issues rooted around food in that it's delicious and I eat way <laughs> too much of it. I mean, uh, same. But I'm, yeah. yeah, so I'm trying to get to the bottom of like, why can I go like say from like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and eat like a normal, really healthy day and then consume another day's worth of meals between 8 and 11 p.m. So I'm looking for a counselor and I've got a few leads for folks that specialize specifically in that and also tomorrow's my first day seeing like our uh, healthcare centers like nutritionists and coming up with the program so just getting back into like hey when I'm at like this weight I feel this much better about myself and I have a lot of things like I don't have a lot of pictures of me because I don't like taking my picture uh, I don't like to look at them so there are a lot of things that are going on there so just the act of like taking you know like here's an exercise plan I'm going to work on. Just kind of taking some control over that back will hopefully have some benefits because, you know, as I'm getting closer to 50, not quite there, you know, few more years, I definitely am like, I can't do the things I did when I'm 20 and expect the same results. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great that you're that you're doing that. And I found a lot of times as I get older, it's not necessarily what I look like. It's how I feel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just want to feel better. You know? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I will yeah. feel half my, you know, I'll feel like 10 pounds lighter just mm -hmm. from doing three workouts a week mm -hmm. and feeling that my self-esteem go up. Even if I know I, I don't actually yeah. use a scale anymore because I don't, I would get too caught up in the number. Mm -hmm. um, and it would really drag me down. So I, I know that I have like, a, if I work out a few times, I haven't lost any weight, but I mm -hmm. feel like I have, and that's when I've, I've really tried to focus on that. So I have almost the exact same issues that you just described, yeah. Mike, and that's because yeah. of some own deep seated issues yeah. around food and stuff in my own family. So, yeah. And for me, I, I just want to like get to the bottom of those issues at this point, because same. I don't think I understand them. So I want to see why they're really controlling me. Uh, I'll just say that those things are super related and I have yeah. a lot of my own experiences with that. Yeah. So yeah. me too. Yeah. And you know, maybe down the road, we'll do a month on that. Cause I think, oh, there's a I'm lot sure we will. There. I'm sure we will. Um, well, we want to know what you think. What do you think of this movie? Anything we've talked about? I know this was kind of a heavier episode and we've talked about a lot. So we want to hear from you. We want to hear your perspective on this movie or, or what else is on your mind? You know, just kind of, we like talking to people. You can also, I say that as a person with like super anxiety about like checking messages mm -hmm. and stuff. So yeah, but we do really like to hear from you. So you can share with us by following us at Psycho Apod on socials. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. This is a private and moderated group, and the people in it are just amazing, um, really funny and supportive and just wonderful in general. 
And you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share with us privately. And I promise I'm going to get better about checking that account. Ha. So, and you can also, pretty please, leave us a rate and review on Apple iTunes. It really helps other people find the pod and it makes us feel good. Um, so thank you for those of you who have already left some reviews. We've gotten some wonderful ones and it really means a lot to us. So thank you. And if you're curious about that and you want to try it, go for it. Five stars for <laughs> psychoanalysis. Anyways, um, so our homework question for today is, oh gosh, one of my favorites that we've done so far. What is your favorite urban legend? And I will share. I got the Encyclopedia of Urban Legends for Christmas this year. So I am super excited to dig into that. Um, speaking of things that I am super fucking excited about, so excited that I might die, our next episode, let's talk <laughs> about what we're doing. Um, this is our final episode on generational trauma. We are going to have a new theme next month that I'm really excited about. But before that... We are talking about the greatest movie of all time, and I'm so excited that I might die, and my hands are shaking, and everybody can see that I'm about to die. Lindsay Travis from Pod and Pendulum. I know. Worlds colliding. I know, man. She is joining us next week for a comfort horror episode on Terminator 2, my all-time favorite movie in the world. I cannot wait to talk about this. So. <sighs> Excellent. I am excited to talk. I need to rewatch that. I'm due for a rewatch this too. <laughs> I'm gonna have to like temper myself mm -hmm. so that I don't explode while we talk about <laughs> this movie. <laughs> So we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, you can find us and lots of other amazing pods like Halloweenies, The Losers Club, and Going There with Dr. Mike by going to consequenceofsound.com. You also find lots of great writing on music, TV, movies, and just pop culture stuff in general. It's pretty cool. And that's also where you can find links to the articles I was telling you about where lots of the links to the resources can be found there. Just scroll to the podcast section. And that's our episode on Candyman. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think how many times we've said that name through the don't episode. Don't think about it. And, and we are looking into mirrors via <laughs> we Zoom. We are. I so know. just don't shut off the lights. Whatever Although, you do. I do like Tony Todd. Um, <laughs> I, anyways. Huh. And so thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for joining us for this month. I know this is not an easy topic to examine. And so I'm really grateful for listeners that have engaged with us on this and have really just kind of taken time um, to, to just engage with us on it and to listen and to kind of try to piece through this really um, tough topic that's really important to talk about. So as we sign off, um, oh, oh, shit, plugs. Sorry. Mike, where can we find you online? So you can find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, with Lindsay Travis wherever you get podcasts. Uh, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com, Pod and the Pendulum, Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. You can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian, uh, where a podcast covers pretty much all horror movie franchises. And right now we're actually moving towards a theme topic for the next two months where we're going to be covering um, the, the new wave of French extremity for horror. So films like Martyrs and Inside and Frontiers. I am in Raw, even though Raw doesn't quite fit that bill, we wanted to talk about that movie. Feels it feels spiritually matched. Yes. Oh yeah, it feels like a descendant of it. So we are starting with Martyrs, which, yeah, it's going to be a lot. So... Go ahead and find us wherever you get your podcasts.
And Laura, where can we find you? Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, A-L-L-S. And my self-care to myself today is not coming up with an underwear-related pun. Nice. Um, got a, um, I'm running out of juice. So if anyone has any, any underwear jokes that they want to shoot me quietly <laughs> as a DM, please do. And you can find me on Instagram at Instaglum, like Instagram with a mood disorder, occasionally on Losers Club and Halloweenies as well. Otherwise, I am trapped in my apartment. Please make it stop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wear masks, people. And you can find me at Jim Ferratu on all of the socials. You can find me also on the Losers Club talking about Stand and just Stephen King in general and stuff. And so I already gave the, and that's our episode, and I'm just probably going to leave it the way it is. But so that's our episode on Candyman. Thank you again for joining us. Let's sign off. Should we say our sign off five times? Yes, let's do our like, no, five, five times in I don't unison. think we could. I don't think we could do it. <laughs> we would all times. have mental breakdowns. On, I think we would. <laughs> Well, so we did come here to chew bubble gum and candy and take care of ourselves. And we and are all, all out of bubble, bubble gum, gum and candy. There is no <laughs> actual candy for candy man. It's honey. And honey is not candy. I, I know. It's it's out. a thin it's a thin thread at best. <laughs>